0: Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here today with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good today, Sean. Thanks for asking.
0: Good. I know you're very excited about our guest today. We were talking before she joined us, so we're going to dive right into it. Our guest is Dr. Laura Toller. She is a lecturer at Durham University in the Department of Psychology, and we know her best as an echolocation expert researcher. So, Laura, uh, thanks for joining us today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting That's
0: okay. me. Well, it's <laughs> our pleasure. So well, we're going to have some fun. So um, you know, in our previous conversation a few weeks back, uh, you were telling me a little bit about your background and how you got into echolocation research. And uh, I was hoping maybe you could share that journey with us, uh, with the audience, what that looked like, you know, from starting out in, in academics and finding yourself as an echolocation researcher.
2: Yes. <laughs> so when I, uh, when I was working on my PhD, I was very interested in how we use vision uh, to perceive the space around us and how we do use vision to guide movements of our hands. And um, when I was then, you know, nearing sort of the completion of my PhD, I was um, interested in how the brain deals with all of this. So I wanted to do some neuroimaging and I got in touch with um, Mel Goodale, who was um, well, at Western Canada, then at Western University. And so I, I went there after my PhD and we started devising some um, some research and then um as it so happened, um, Mel got a message from um, Gordon Dutton, who is a uh, neuro in Glasgow, in Scotland, and he um, mentioned Daniel Kish, and um, you know, pointed out what he does and that he uses uh, clicks to echolocate. And um, we then Googled it, and uh, were just astounded, actually, at the amount of information that was available just by Googling it. That was back in 2009. And, um, and we were immediately hooked so I just was fascinated and um, it was very new for me echolocation uses sound but what struck me was just how confident and versatile and how you know going through all of these things that were available on the web at the time it was just amazing how, um, how great this worked in a lots of different scenarios you know you get clips with with daniel riding his bike and doing all sorts of things and um so yeah we just wanted to tap into this and, and just do some research on it and mainly also learning how the brain deals with this information and uh yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah this, this is so exciting like I, I mean i don't even know how to, to start i have so many questions like when i started doing some research like before uh, having news i guess on our podcast i was i was humbled on, on like how little I know about all that. And uh, I mean, I understand the visual pathways pretty well. But I was surprised to see that, you in, know, in echolocation, uh, the same uh, visual primary cortex is uh, stimulated. So uh, I was just wondering if you could explain, like, to me in our audience, like, how does it work, you know, because they hear the, the echo. But that somehow goes towards the part, the part of the brain that processes like a, a light uh, uh, stimulus.
2: Yes. So in um, when when the visual system is um, so, let's say if there's no visual input coming in through the retina, then you know the whole brain adjusts. Lots of things happen, and um, um, there it has been previous research investigating then how our brain areas may be... Um, taken over. Now echolocation works through sound, so the sound enters through the ears and uh, then goes along auditory pathways and then during neuroimaging what we found was, however, that uh, when we compared, okay, which parts of the brain respond to these echoes and which parts of the brain respond to sound that's sort of the same but basically just lacks the echo. so that was our control sound. And comparing these two conditions, we found that one part that that was really um, processing or very active when when these echoes were present was primary visual cortex, which typically processes light in in people who are um, normally sighted. And so, you know, that was just really amazing to us because even though other research had shown that the brain reorganizes itself and that in people who are blind, visual cortex can process, for example, touch or sound, um, primary visual cortex is still somewhat special because it's the, you know, the earliest entry point for, for um, visual um, radiations on the cortical level. So it's, um, that's still very exciting to see that something as tiny as an echo elicits activity in that part of the brain. How that exactly works, actually, we still don't know, Uh, but, you know, at at some level, there must be the the information that's obtained from the echoes must be either be channeled directly into that part of the brain. There are some direct connections between um, early auditory cortex and early visual cortex. It's also possible maybe that this gets um, channeled through um, other higher order areas, so a bit like a you know, they go into these higher order areas and then come projected down into maybe primary visual cortex. So the exact way it works, we don't know yet.
1: And how, how, how far it goes, the potential of humans to be fully dependable on echolocation? Like, can we can we can someone be trained like to, to as, as a bat, for example, like that, that doesn't need to see at all and, and can just fly around and avoid uh, anything? Can can humans be that uh, that able? rely on echolocation? Do we have that potential?
2: Well, bats actually, I mean, many bats use vision as well. You know, what people say blind as a bat, that's actually not a good phrase, because many bats have visual processing, and they have vision, and they do use it as well. So echolocation and vision can be complementary. And what we actually find in our work is that everyone can learn to echolocate and that means people who have no vision at all people are totally blind but also people who have some residual vision and also people normally sighted everyone picks it up and um, you know there are different levels um, to which people can come like some people may may become much more proficient than others sometimes hard to pinpoint exactly what the reasons might be for this Um, one thing that's very obvious to us is that people who are blind use echolocation much more it's just more useful to them
0: so you know bruno is asking the question about the potential that people have in terms of echolocation um and you're mentioning that people can you know pretty much anybody can learn this i'm just curious what that looks like if i came to you and said uh laura okay um i have visual impairment and i'd like to learn to echolocate um is this like something that is going to take me years to learn uh, the basics or is it something you can pick up the basics quickly? And maybe what would that look like? I guess if I came to you and said, help me, help me learn how to echolocate."
2: (laughs) Yeah. So um, the basics you can pick up um, almost in an instant, I'd say maybe 10 minutes tops it's um and this surprises many many people but the key is that all you need to do is you need to find a sound uh, a situation that's just really obvious so it's i call it like the hook stimulus you know you have to find something where where the echo is just very obvious to to the person that's um that's trying to learn it what i like to do for example if someone comes that's teach me, you know. <laughs> the first thing is that I demonstrate just a bit how these clicks work. Um, I, I encourage them to make their own clicks. And then we bring in simple objects like um, a large book, a tablet, or a salad bowl. And, you know, I have very salad bowls in the office. <laughs> mm. And um, and then you can bring these in front of the person and it's usually very obvious when that object is in front of you. and some people can hear that even without making any clicks themselves. And if that's the case, you can just move it a bit further away. And you know, at some point you'll probably find a distance at which without clicking, the person won't be able to hear it. and then you encourage them to make a click and then you just you know bring it in front take it away and usually they can tune in relatively quickly you just have to make sure that you know you're very clear in what it is you're doing so that the person trying it out doesn't feel like you know this is all very random so they have some way of linking the experience of what they're hearing to what happens to the object that's um, being presented.
0: So, I just have a, uh, a quick note on that so um, you know when you and I spoke previously as well I had mentioned that uh, being visually impaired, I had done some orientation and mobility training mm-hmm. and uh, I was never used, learn. I guess I was never taught to, you know, echolocate in that sense of producing sounds. And maybe we can come back to that, but um, just the minute you completely take away vision, you naturally get a little bit more in tune to your environment, right? And I mm-hmm. um, distinctly remember two scenarios, one where you know, I'm walking with a blindfold, I have a, a guide making sure I don't run into things um but as i was walking down a hallway uh it might have been you know 12 or 15 feet wide a pretty large hallway uh, i could tell the minute i was walking past an open door even if there was no sounds coming from the room i could tell i was walking past an open door or with the concrete wall uh if i was passing by a window for example and it was pretty amazing without any training at all how i you know noticed those types of things in my environment or if you go into a space with um, you know, the ceilings, the height changes from a 10 foot ceiling to a, you know, a 30 foot ceiling or something. And, uh, and another thing that I remembered was when, um, and maybe this is equilocation, maybe it's not, I don't know. But when, um, my guide was telling me, okay, let's just walk along and just tell me what you notice. And I got to a point where I just stopped suddenly. And she says, well, why did you stop? I said, I don't know. I just felt like I was going to hit something. And she says, take off your blindfold. And I was maybe 18 inches away from a wall. <laughs> she was prepared mm-hmm. to stop me. But it was almost like this pressure I could feel uh, uh, on my body as I was approaching something. I don't know. Is that yeah.
2: echolocation
0: also or is that something absolutely. else?
2: <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, echolocation is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a broad term. So echolocation in the, broad, in the really broadest sense is just you use... Reflections of sound to get information about your environment. And, you know, that can be um, you relying on the sound that's already around you without making any additional sound. And so that's the experience that you're describing is actually, you know, I think that's very representative. There's a lot of sound in the environment and just give you uh, a lot of information because the sound bounces around everywhere. And as you approach corners or gaps, it changes. And that is echolocation. We call that passive echolocation and um, the echolocation that that we investigate in our research is active echolocation so where people make their own sounds and in particular mouth clicks but you know it doesn't have to be mouth clicks can also be other sounds could be finger snaps could be whistling humming people may use a clicker you know it's all the similar principle and when we investigate this click-based echolocation it's actually What we always do is we compare how do people go about a task or how does their brain process things when the clicks and echoes are present as compared to when they're not present. And what's important is that in this control condition, all the other sounds are still there. So any benefits that we, for example, then report or find are, are those that are just really that you get by making the clicks and processing the click echoes. And um, that's just for us to isolate this process, because active echolocation, same principle in a way as passive echolocation, only difference, you make your own sound. And then the benefit is that you just have control over what's happening. You can decide when to make your sound, where to put it, you know, you click to the right, to the left, straight ahead. And also, um, if everything's totally silent, you just have this Additional thing, I call it. I like to refer to it as the acoustic flashlight.
1: And uh, for active uh, echolocation, location, uh, you mentioned that it can be clicks or it can be any type of sound. Uh, is it just a personal preference, or or uh, is there a sound that it's better than the other generates a more accurate echo?
2: Yes. One thing that we've noticed in our research is that people who use active echolocation by themselves, they all know how to use the clicks and many discover them spontaneously for themselves. The clicks are easy to make. Um, I'll just make one. I'm not sure how this will actually sound, but I'll just give it a go here. You hear that?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So they're quite brief sounds. Um, They're actually very loud, but because they're very brief, they don't sound very loud. Um, It means, however, that the sound can travel quite far and you get a good echo back, even though it's not super loud. If you made the same loudness of sound, say doing a whistle or a voice would be very noticeable, very loud. Um, Another thing, another advantage is that you can make the clicks without breathing. Which means if you're walking or doing something, you know, it doesn't like take away your breath. <laughs> mm. And uh, they're fairly reproducible as well. Research has shown that one advantage of in echo active echolocation is that if you have a, um, a sound that's fairly reproducible in terms of spectral content. And so because the clicks, the way you make them, they're actually quite reproducible, that is maybe one reason also why I th- we think that that people find them quite useful.
1: And are there companies uh, looking into developing uh, devices to help echolocation, either by producing those clicks in a very like standard and reproducible way, or let's say like a hearing aid that it's placed on the ear and, and augment the perception of those echoes?
2: Mm -hmm. There, I mean there have been quite a few um, patterns I I think even going back to like the 50s where people have proposed or developed devices based on this echolocation principle none of these devices have really had a, a big breakthrough and maybe it's possible that they were just not as intuitive perhaps as the natural echolocation process or maybe you know there's a price to consider there are things to consider such as you know maintenance reliance on batteries things such as this many devices that i am aware of and have read about they extract certain features from the environment like the distance of something and When you do your own clicks and and interpret them actually you can decide which feature you want to listen to right you can determine how far away something but we know that echolocators can also get information like shape um, if something's moving or not the material that it's made of the position also if it's like behind you so um, that's maybe one of the reasons why perhaps at this point none of the devices haven't been as successful perhaps as, as natural echolocation. But that said, it's not like there are lots of lots of people who use click-based echolocation at the moment. But we do find that it's picking up the more people learn about it.
0: I'm thinking that maybe and this is just a hypothesis, but maybe why there's not a, a ton of people with low vision that are using click-based echolocation is because the first uh, impression might be that, oh my goodness, this is this is tough. Like right? right when you mentioned Daniel Gish, and, and there's other people who have uh seemed to have mastered this type of skill. And it's you know, even when I look at that, I say, Wow, you know, hey, that's amazing, and that's just you know, obviously, they have some sort of genetic <laughs> predisposition to being superheroes. Um, and uh, I could never learn that, or if I did, it's going to take you know 20,000 hours or whatever. Um, and maybe. Uh, you know, as people become more familiar with the domain, they can realize that a certain level of proficiency could be achieved actually rather uh, quickly and not, you know, it doesn't require this, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of mastery. I was hoping that you could maybe comment on um, conscious versus unconscious effort in terms Mm -hmm. of echolocation.
2: Let me actually first go back to what you said before about the amount of effort required and the skill level and so on, because actually earlier I had mentioned, but then I we sort of went off with <laughs> something else. So uh, it certainly requires practice. But for example, we've run a research study where people uh, took part in a 10-week training program. They came twice a week and did two hours twice a week, and all of them came out with with really with skills that they use in their daily life, and which they reported as being successful and had a very positive impact on their mobility and independence you know that's not thousands of hours but i totally agree with you you know not everyone's going to be like daniel kish or like some of the other echolocators who you might find featured in in the media but that might be also just because people have different personalities you know not everyone wants to ride a bike not everyone wants to go mountain climbing Um, Sometimes the reports that are in the media may raise some unrealistic expectations about what echolocation can do. Sometimes it is described as seeing with sound uh, which then you know leads people to believe oh yeah this is like I can see now um, but it's it's different because it's based on sound and there are certain limitations that come with it but also certain advantages so, um, for example, I, I mentioned earlier the clicks are a bit like an acoustic flashlight or, you know, whichever sound you decide to make, but that means it's a sort of it's like a point elimination. <laughs> so it doesn't give you everything. And also, you know, sometimes things will block it where it goes. Um, one thing that we know is that echolocation is not very useful at detecting things at ground level. So none of the echolocators that I know. Would use it without, for example, something like the long cane or a guide dog. All of the echolocators use these other mobility tools as well. Many of them will use additional things, uh, you know, also GPS or other electronic um, or apps that are available. So it's echolocation is a skill that anyone can learn and that can be useful, and that certainly can help um, orienting on. Uh, for example, detecting targets at further distances, like up to 50 meters away or so, so that can be useful for orientation. And it can also help you detect if something's coming up and it's about to maybe hit you in the face, <laughs> so then you can just stop. Um, but it's not gonna be like a, you know, a super tool. Uh, yeah.
1: Like for, 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 for vision, Uh, So there is this condition in ophthalmology called amblyopia that uh, if a vision doesn't get stimulated in an early age, so let's say a kid that has a cataract, uh, after like seven years of age or something, even if you correct like that, uh, that, that, that that the cause for, for the temporary blindness, uh, the vision is not restored. So, so basically the brain cannot process uh, visual uh, stimulus anymore Uh, for sighted. People, you know, like they never relied on echolocation that much. Uh, does the same thing happen? Like, do we? Let's say me, I'm forty something. Uh, is it is it too late for me to to work on it? Do you have more success when you train young people than older people do? To their the plasticity of their brain, their brains.
2: Our research, so we have addressed this question actually of, of age, how does age affect it. But the, um, our age range was, so the youngest participant was 20 and the old, oldest one was 79. And we did not find um, a relationship between the age of the person and the degree to which they learned to use echolocation. So it seemed that the older participants learned just as well as the younger ones.
1: And so as we're talking about participants, uh, this is a curiosity here,
2: mm-hmm. how, how
1: hard or easy it is for you to recruit like, people to participate on those studies? Because people are usually reluctant like, to be guinea pigs, but I will yeah. be so pumped like, to be, <laughs> to be, a, to be a, a participant of a study like this.
2: Yeah, we typically don't have any problems in terms of finding participants. Um, people are happy to take part. The the logistically most challenging study we did was the 10-week study where people had to come in twice a week. Um, and even there, actually, we, we did find, you know, we had people who were, wanted to come in. Um, one problem we had or we sometimes encounter is that for some of the research that we've done to date, we had quite strict criteria about the level of vision that that people could have had so for example uh our the recent training study was for people who were either totally blind or just had bright light perception and um you know then the the limits we we had with that we hit where we are here in durham in the uk was really more geographical problem because you know if you have to do this sort of thing you don't want to drive an hour each time
0: yeah (laughs) so you know um i wasn't just maybe before we before we wrap up, I want to circle back to your research a little bit. And we can dive into this for, for a while if uh, if you have the time. Um, your research in echolocation, I, I think there's probably not, you know, thousands of groups around the world doing this. Um, but it seems that what you're, uh, from my understanding of the research, just um, briefly looking through what you've done, is that it, it informs the general learning community, I guess, about how the brain Is learning am I am I, you know, often left field on that, or is that um, something that you're taking out of this too, and or that the the whole field is taking out of this that it's not just about echolocation that there's more coming out of the research that you're doing that has broad applications.
2: Yes. No. You're exactly right. So. We use echolocation because, you know, we're fascinated by it because it is a direct use for, for people who have vision impairments, but we also use it as a paradigm to investigate on a more general level how does the brain learn stuff. <laughs> and um, now the beauty using click-based echolocation for this is that, that many people, or the majority of people at this point at least, have little to no experience with it. And so that means that when we start out people with this, we, um, we have a nice baseline. So for example, when I was mentioning the effects um, or that we, we have people participating who were younger and older, you know, none of them really reported to have experience in ecoloc- click-based echolocation before that. And so that means that when we start them, there's you know, we, we can be reasonably confident that with respect to this particular skill, everyone starts from scratch. And then when we track progress, it just um, it does give us more confidence or gives us good confidence that we can then investigate how this affects um, the brain and that the changes that we observe aren't, say, contaminated, <laughs> if you will, is maybe a bad word, but um, anyway, that we, that we have a good way to investigate then how the brain changes in response to learning new skills in general. And echolocation is just our paradigm that we choose to do this.
1: Uh, as we are, I mean, on, on that like this uh, echolocation ability being used by uh, 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 like cited individuals has, has anyone ever used that to to let's say improve their performance? Like uh, I'm thinking about an athlete that, that like becomes more able, and and yeah. that gives him an edge like over over his uh, opponent.
2: It's actually you know it's. Um... Funny you should ask. (laughs) So so one thing um, that we are investigating, and I do this with collaborators um, here at Durham, for example, um, Marco Nardini, and one thing that we look at is how do people integrate information across various sensory modalities? And uh, we have, for example, investigated how people may combine information that they gain from vision and from click-based echolocation. And what we do find is that people, they combine information from both and um, in instances where vision is not very good, people's performance improves by adding in information that they gain from echolocation. And this is the case for people who are normally sighted.
0: So, so Bruno, I know where that question is coming from. (laughs) I I think think, uh, Laura, I don't know uh, how much, you know, uh, Bruno's background as an ophthalmologist, but he's also a world champion uh, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And um and a coach actually, now, so a like, coach, uh, coach now. He he's, he's I like, like to
1: train some superhumans. Super humans. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, no, but but it's funny you said because um, you know, I know I've trained with him before too, and uh, they'll actually do classes uh sometimes completely in the dark to help train the athletes in that way to say, okay, yeah. it helps them uh yeah. yeah, just instead of trying to depend exactly. on their eyes when they're in close combat. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think so so there's that element, right? You shake up your your common belief on how things are by taking away something and and then people get more acute, they tune in more into the other senses, so if you take away vision, they might tune more into audition, into into, um, touch, um, also temperature or smell, all of these elements. Um, When you learn a new skill, that could be click-based echolocation, but also just learning a new language your whole brain usually also reshuffles itself and, and research has shown that it can actually lead to generalized cognitive benefits. So for example, learning a new language might give you a better ability to focus uh, also in other tasks that have nothing to do with that new language. And we think, but we haven't done the research yet, that's something that we are you know, in the process of doing, um, that uh, when you learn a new skill like, like basic echolocation, that might also give you generalized benefits in, for example, the ability to focus in other domains. So there's sort of um, a benefit from learning a new skill and, you know, possibly click-based echolocation, which might sort of transcend just being better in that particular skill, but it might just give you another general sort of boost, if you will.
0: No, and that's that's definitely interesting. So I just wanted to circle back to one question that i was uh was asking and then i asked two questions in one and uh, didn't really give the opportunity but i had asked about um conscious versus unconscious uh, effort and i was hoping maybe you can touch on that and explain what that means
2: yeah so when people learn or when they first start off you making the clicks and you know getting into echolocation they most of them have to concentrate a lot so they do Will, will tell us, you know, I, I find that uh, I have to concentrate. And so this would certainly be a, a conscious effort. But then when I'm uh, out and about with people who've used click-based echolocation for a long time, they sometimes do these like very rapid adjustments, like avoiding a branch that's hanging down and, or, you know, a, a small pole or something where, you know, and I'm not by used so, <laughs> so used that they will do this. I, I just go, but then they still do this very quickly. So and this, these responses or reactions and, and motor movement, they just seem so quick and so swift um, that it, it just it seems almost automatic or unconscious. And um, so I think there's an element of how long one has been doing this to the degree to which this then requires, you know, a lot of effort or to which degree it might become automatic. It's something that we haven't done A lot of research on one study that we have currently under review is that we we asked people who were sighted and learned to echolocate um, that we gave them another task to do um, like a a digit span task and it seemed that this didn't really affect their ability to echolocate very much so it seemed that those almost went in parallel but when they had to do a, a task where they had to sort of when they have like a competing visual stimulus, for example, that seem to, um, to affect their performance. So I think in some degree, maybe echolocation could be considered conscious, unconscious. It's is a bit difficult because it depends maybe how you define it, but there are certainly levels at which people are able to do another task whilst they're also echolocating, or they may respond in a way that seems very fast and automatic
0: um, before we wrap up, I would just like to say that at some point in time, um, uh, maybe when COVID is a, uh, is a distant memory, um, and Bruno and I find ourselves on the other side of the pond. Um, I would love to go to your lab and learn how to, <laughs> to, to echolocate. I would love to do a, a yes. podcast, a podcast. Like it's okay. This is, this is real, you know, echolocation raw, like just <laughs> learning and, and, uh, you know, it kind of walk through some of that. Cause I think it's, Something that is extremely interesting to the audience, um, not just for patients that might be listening, but just for for yeah. clinicians and researchers too to under, understand that. So, um, hopefully, uh, if that opportunity presents itself, that you'll uh, you'll take us on as <laughs> as temporary. Mm-hmm. temporary no, ab-
2: absolutely, and- I- I'd be pleased to. Um, I tell you what, we are actually also what I would like is developing resources where people could actually do this um, remotely online. Um, The remote experience is not not ever going to be the same as the real person experience. I think there's also an element when you train echolocation and you have someone with you who's good at it. You sort of, you know, it's inspiring. So it's a bit, there's that element that you don't get from from learning this remotely and on your own. But then at the same time, there there are definitely elements that people could learn by themselves and they, they don't have to come, you know, to my lab. I mean, many people wouldn't be able to do that one thing that's happening right now actually in the uk is that because we've also been informing a lot and we've met a lot with rehab workers with with habilitation workers and so on there's really a growing sense of that this is something that's really useful to do Um, in many ways it's not super novel i mean if you go back in the literature the first time you know someone reported from this use of echolocation with sounds is in 1700 something so it's really not terribly new. I think the new angle is that it's now sort of very systematic and that we're honing in on this particular active echolocation using clicks or brief transient sounds and that we have this additional tool of neuroimaging where we can track how this affects the brain and I think all of this together maybe helps raising awareness and maybe also gives it a bit more credibility
0: no, then this is, this is great. I'm going to guess that whenever you're applying for grants, you don't say this, uh, this is from the 1700s. This is, we've known this for <laughs> hundreds of years. <laughs> they say, well, then why are we funding this? So no, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Listen, this is, this has been fun. Um, I'm, uh, you know, hoping that we can maybe get you back on the podcast at some point in time. Maybe that's, uh, with the, the live echolocation t- training with Bruno and I, identifying salad bowls and, and everything else that goes along in the, in the lab, Like maybe we can do a, I can do a challenge or something. That'd be really fun to see how fast we could learn, but, uh, but yeah, no, but listen, this is seriously, this is, this is fantastic. And um, we're going to uh, link out to some of your research, if you don't mind through, um, through the podcast website uh, for people who want to learn more about what you're doing and where the field's at. And um, yeah, I would just like to take the opportunity to, to thank you for joining us today. It's certainly been a pleasure speaking with you.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I enjoyed this very much as well.
0: Thank
1: you, Laura. Thank you.
2: Thanks for